Let's pray. God, this morning, uh, first of all, before we pray about anything uh, having to do with how we spend these next few minutes or even how another church spends their next few minutes, we want to pray for those just right down the road that are grieving and um, who are trying to make sense of what unfolded just last night. Pray for families that are trying to figure out how to sort out Christmas Day and all the celebration that must have gone along with that, and then the day after Christmas losing everything, maybe even people that they love. God, I pray for the churches in that context right now, Lake Point, um, um, pray for Cross Point Community Church, newly planted there, part of us, family, church family that's right next to this heartbreak and loss, Lord, I pray that they can be salty, bright, and aromatic, and a source of hope a source of sense, trying to make sense of something that's, that's terribly tragic. God, we know that a tornado doesn't happen except that you allow it. We know that a random molecule does not do what it wants to do except by your permission. We enjoy your sovereignty this morning as we are lifting up people that must be trying to um, cope. Also, Lord, this morning, I want to pray specifically for another church in our community. We pray for a church that's been in our community for a long time, for family fellowship. We pray for Paul and Lynn Blue. Uh, we pray first of all for their marriage and their worship. I just um, have a heart for other pastors and their wives and their families, um, knowing that they are in the jaws of Satan uh, half the time, and that if they can be crippled or distracted, that a church can be crippled and distracted. Lord, I know as I pray for them, as we lift them up this morning, that as the shepherd goes, the sheep go. And Lord, we pray for Paul and Lynn this morning, that they are enjoying you, that I pray that they had a sweet Christmas together. I pray that even right now, as Paul likely is preparing to preach, that he is stirred, filled, and um, blessed grateful, um, overwhelmed with your goodness, your mercy, that he's fueled by the calling that you placed on his life to pastor and preach. And Lord, I pray that that will spill over onto a people, that you'll use him to speak through him. I pray for Lynn as a pastor's wife, all the expectations that she likely places on herself, that you would guard her from those things, and she would just enjoy you out loud. She would be a sweet ministry to her husband, encouraging him and helping him, and to their family. Lord, we pray for the, fam the, the family fellowship church body. We pray right now that they are enjoying you. Thankful for a long-term ministry in our community. Thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, um, I'm thankful for the good medicine in this truth. I needed it. I'm thankful that you've given it to me, that you will give it to our body. We love you. We give this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. 
That's not going to be home base for us this morning, but it's going to be the first place we go. Home base will be 1 Corinthians 15. So if you'd like to have a, a bookmark or a finger in both of those places, you're welcome to do that. I wish I could say that I stay renewed and refreshed and ready and filled and fitted. But man, I'm going to tell you, sometimes I experience some serious winters. I experience valleys that oftentimes are not small in this journey of faith. And then from time to time, there's a truth or something that we find in God's Word that is just right on time. Something that hits me and connects to me in a way where I appreciate a good and caring and ministering God that's going to give me what I need when I need it. I'll tell you what I'm going to share with you this morning. I find that the timing on this is right for me at least. It's just what the doctor ordered as I roll into the new year. I'm hoping today that it's just what the doctor's ordered for you. Starting today and for the next couple of weeks at least, possibly longer, but I think it'll at least be the next two weeks, I'm going to share what I've bumped into. It's something that we've bumped into together, but I've spent more time on, and I'll share with you in a moment what that is. I trust, though, that if I need it, then you probably need it, or you could at least use it for something in the future. My hope as I've prepared this sermon and my hope as I preach this morning is that what we consider together in these next few minutes will be something that fills some of your most wonderful thoughts in 2015. That's a big hope and a big prayer, but it's a big, fat, ripe truth. It's a rich one. My hope and prayer is that these things that we consider today and these next couple of weeks will be things that you remember and enjoy. A couple of months ago, we were in Ephesians, working through Ephesians. That's sort of home base for us right now, that and Isaiah. And a couple of months ago, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, dealing with, to me, what is one of the most concise and balanced and wonderful passages in our Bible dealing with the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read those passages in two pieces, and I'm going to sort of acquaint us with where we're going this morning, set the context for the rest of the morning. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A couple of months ago when we dealt with this passage, we found and considered together that the good news is best enjoyed with the bad news in view, at least in your periphery. Or at least as a backdrop, the bad news helps you appreciate the good. And these first four verses are full of bad news. We considered together that the human problem is universal for Jew and Gentile alike. That we, just like Paul and the hearers of this letter, are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our situation is desperate we follow, just like they followed, Satan's leaning. 
apart from some sort of movement and intervention from God. We, like the Ephesians and Paul, cater to the world's designs and the world's expectations and the world's values. We, like them, apart from God's intervention, live according to our flesh and our passions, and we say yes to every whim and every fancy. And we, like the Jew and the Gentile, apart from some sort of game changer, are due the wrath of a holy God. That's the bad news, people. Those first four verses deal with it thoroughly. But God, two beautiful words in this next verse, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God are two very welcome words here in this passage in light of the bad bad news with that backdrop, at least in our periphery, we see that bad news in the first four verses, but the next two words are welcome. But God, this very same God who judges fairly and does not and will not wink at sin made a way out for us. This holy and just God moved out of his love and his grace and his mercy with three massive verbs. He made us alive. He raised us and he seated us. Three wonderfully awesome, treasured verbs. But these verbs are special. All three of these verbs are what I would call sniglets. Pauline sniglets, if we're going to give them official name. A sniglet is a word that people have used over the years that define a sniglet for you. It's any word that doesn't appear in the dictionary but should. Here are some examples. Dramatic. It's one of my favorite. There's been a Marine told me when I first joined, he said, Sir, this is a, a senior Marine, he's talking to me, he said, Sir, there have been some dramatic changes in the Marine Corps since I've been in there. I'll never forget that one. Another of my favorite is frustrated. When you're flustered and you're frustrated at the same time, you're frustrated. Or a really amazing nap is a napture. And then you know those people that sneeze four or five times in a row? That's a sneezer. Some great sniglets out there. Paul, though, deals with some very serious sniglets right here. All three of these verbs, made alive, raised and seated, are all Greek sniglets where he combines with Christ. Made alive together with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ. This holy and just and merciful and loving God made us alive with Christ. We can't leave those things out. We can't even assume the with Christ because that's the point of the verb. He raised us with Christ and he seated us with Christ. We learned together a few weeks ago that this is the good news, this phrase, our union by faith with 
Christ. I've been a Christian since I'm six, and I've never really had my hands around that until we stop down, moving slowly through Ephesians chapter 2, that union with Christ is the good news. The good news for us is that what happened to Christ happens by faith, by our union with him, to us. His resurrection means our resurrection. His exaltation means, scandalously, our exaltation. I confessed in that sermon that I was wholly unsatisfied, and I remain to this point wholly unsatisfied with our light handling of such a deep and important truth of the union with Christ. We just bumped into it. But this morning and over the next, few, next couple of weeks, we're going to thoroughly deal with this beautiful truth of union with Christ. There are four parts of it. We're not going to deal with any of the four today. Today's an introductory sermon. But two of them we've gathered up from Ephesians. The first one is that we are with Christ Those three verbs all made together, connected with Christ. That's the first one. If you take notes, it would be great things to take notes on. If you don't take notes, it would be a great day to start. We are with Christ. Verses 5 and 6 wonderfully demonstrate that. And we are in Christ. That's something else that we can gather from this Ephesians passage, beautifully illustrated in verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in In Christ Jesus for good works. We're going to add to these two things in the next couple of weeks from other passages, two more things. Third, Christ is in us. And the fourth, we are like Christ. These four truths we're going to deal with in these next two weeks. This morning, though, is introductory. Let me coach you on how I'd like you to approach this week and these next two. There are people who are completely satisfied with never understanding how things work. You probably know who I'm talking about. You might be that person, the sort of give me the answer people. Those of you that are teachers, you may teach math and you know what I'm talking about. The student that just wants the answer but doesn't really want to know why. Doesn't want to know how you get there. Doesn't want to understand how it works. Just give me the answer. There are people in church too that just tell me what to do. I don't really care why or how it works. I just want to know the right thing to do. There are people that are just tell me what to do people. People also that just tell me how to do marriage, for example. I don't really care what it means. I don't really care how it's supposed to work. I just want to do it. I want to encourage you that this sort of mindset is honest and fair when it comes to things like electronics. Just use your cell phone and don't really worry about what's going on in there. Just it's magic, all right? Just leave that. That's okay. Leave it as magic. Some of you that treat your car that way, some might argue that you need to understand your car better than that, but I would argue that that's probably okay. You don't have to understand how your car works. But one place it's not okay to think that way is in regards to relationships, With other people and with your God, it's not okay to think that way. For treating others and treating God like electronics with no desire to understand him or them and what he's up to would be like never really aiming to understand and know your spouse. You just want to get married, but you don't really want to understand him or her. The notion of doing marriage without ever really understanding not only who you're married to, 
But what marriage means will make for a pretty crummy marriage. I can guarantee that. And it also makes for pretty crummy worship. It's just existence. Rich worship, though, I would argue, means understanding how and why. These next three sermons are how and why sermons. They're going to deal with some application, especially these next two Sundays. But they're how and why sermons. They're for people that want to understand how God has saved us so that they can enjoy it all the more. These sermons are going to work at how God has saved us. We're going to work to see the circuits and the welds and the fittings and see how they work together so that we can truly enjoy our salvation even better and enjoy our God all the more. So let's launch off into our introductory message. Lots of intro there, but it's not a real lengthy passage this morning, or it's not a real lengthy sermon. It's a beautiful passage. We could spend months on it, but we're going to handle it in a way that is recognizing that we have our little ones in with us and that it's, you're probably hyped up on tryptophan. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context for 1 Corinthians Paul has has planted a church in Corinth. And at this point, in the time of the writing of this letter, uh, he is likely in Ephesus at this point. But he's gotten word that some things are going on in the Corinthian church that aren't good. He's gotten word about division. He's gotten word about lawsuits. He's gotten word about sexual sin being rampant and even undealt with. And probably worst of all, as he's, we're going to deal with in this passage, he's gotten word that there's been some false teaching having to do with the resurrection. You know, if you're really not paying attention, you could think, well, that just sounds, sounds like more peripheral stuff. Sounds more theological, but wouldn't really have to do with anything really central and important. I hope in the next few minutes you will realize that it is of utmost importance. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look through verse 11 and just take a few. We're going to try and make sense of this passage, and then we're going to move through uh, verses 15, or excuse me, 12 through 20. And that's as far as we're going to go this morning. To a divided church, a church that's really been shaken with false teaching, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now what I want you to do in these next few minutes is I drew in my notes. You could draw it in your Bible. I don't think this, this would be terrible, but you don't have to. You could draw it in your notes too. A little football next to the gospel. That's the football that I want you to keep an eye on this morning. Okay, a little football, a little wee football. You know what they look like, stitches and everything. Just draw it in there. This is the football that I want you to pay attention to. I, I want to remind you, brothers, of the football that I gave you or the gospel I preached to you, which, first of all, you received, in which you, second of all, stand, and third of all, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the football I gave you. Okay? You understand what I'm, what I'm doing here? I want you to keep your eye on this thing, this message, this gospel, this word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, he says. Okay? Continues in verse 3. We're going to consider what the football is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul's saying somebody gave me a football. And I gave you exactly what was given to me. And here's what it is. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Second, that he was buried. And third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. It's a very simple football. 
Now, I know that this is not the way football is built, but just for imaginary sake, just to kind of imagine, visualize the whole thing, we're going to consider that part of the football is, you know, the, the, the stitches may be that first thing that, that Christ died for our sins. The leather might be that, that uh, what, what was the second thing, that he, he was buried. And then the stuffing. Now, I know there's no stuffing. I played football, believe it or not. I played center, so I actually touched the football. I know there's no stuffing in there, but we're going to imagine just for the next few minutes that there's stuffing in there, and the stuffing, the really marrow, the, the real sweet marrow of the football is this reality that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This gospel that he preached is very simple. It really has three parts. And frankly, you've got to appreciate that it is of utmost importance. He says it right here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It was simple and it was basic. It was passed to me and I passed it to you in three parts. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised. Period. Now, here's the cool thing though. Paul could spend a lot of time right here reminding them of how he taught them about Jesus died for their sins. He could spend some time talking about how he was buried, you know, with borrowed tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, how he was put in a tomb and all that. But where he spends his time in these next few minutes is on the third part of his being risen. Listen to what he says in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's another name for Peter, and to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This letter would have been written about 20 years later. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Paul is speaking of himself when he was formerly named Saul on the road to Damascus, where he saw the risen Lord. Now, I'm going to remind you again of what the football is. First of all, it's uber important. A church that's shaken, Paul is going to equip them and, and, and help them regroup with, let me put the football back in your hands. Remember, I gave it to you. Here's what it consisted of. Three things. A, a, a Christ that died for your sins, a Christ that was buried, and a Christ that was risen. And then the third thing is resurrection is emphasized here. You got to notice Resurrection is emphasized, and it is, in fact, proven here. Resurrection is witnessed here, and it is documented. There is no ancient event in, or there's no event in ancient history that is, more, that is better documented than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. And this is where Paul takes this shaken church. Before we continue with the rest of the passage, I want us just to consider a few things. First of all, how important is the resurrection to you? This might be a funny sermon for us to consider on the Sunday after uh, Christmas. Maybe this should be an Easter Sunday, but we'll preach it again then or some version of the same thing then. I think it's fitting. But how important is the question or the reality of the resurrection to you? Apparently, it is an important enough thing to Paul that he reminds them of it and he calls it Big part, a big part of the good news, the football. And here it's not only stated, but he reminds them of who he saw or who saw Jesus alive. He even points out their names. Now the 500 he doesn't, but he points out some names. What he's going to do is here he's making an argument for their resurrection based on Christ's proven resurrection. 
And you'll see union with Christ here in a minute. So you've got to hang with me. But realize the argument that he's making. He's convincing them of their future and promised resurrection based on the reality of Christ's proven resurrection. And the way he proves it with a few verses here is with witnesses. Witnesses by name. Legitimate, credible witnesses who either died for their testimony or were willing to die for their testimony. Most of them died for their testimony. Here's just a little short list. Peter was believed to have been crucified upside down. He requested, I don't want to be crucified like my Savior. Can you turn me upside down? Because I'm not even worthy to be crucified the same way he was. The 12, of the 12, they were all martyred, all but John, who we believe died of old age. One of the few, it may be the only apostle or disciple that died of old age. Then there are 500 of the brothers who saw Jesus risen, most of whom likely became lion food or a lit torch around some arena, who likely lost everything because of their testified witness. Then there's James. We don't know which James this was. It's either James, one of the sons of Zebedee, or James, the brother of Jesus. Both of them died, so it doesn't matter. They both died by martyr, by martyrdom. James, the son of Zebedee, died by the sword. James, Jesus' brother, was stoned to death. Both witnesses died for their witness. And then Paul was beheaded. Man, I'm just thinking that's some really strong proof for the resurrection. Because I don't know about you, but for me, if I, it's something that I made up. I'm probably just before they cut my head off, maybe, maybe well before they cut my head off, I'm going to say, okay, I was just kidding. I didn't see the risen Lord. Please don't stone me with many stones. Please don't cut my head off. Please don't crucify me upside down. It was all just a farce and just a joke. I just wanted to see what you would do. I mean, really, that's the evidence Paul's using for the proof of the resurrection. Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is one of the only, this may be the only other, no, I have one other place we're going this morning. But you were going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so keep a bookmark there. Acts chapter 13. This is another gospel telling. We're going to, we're going to try and make sense of if this is just a rare occasion where Paul is saying this is the football, or if Paul in Paul's mind thinks that the football is partly made up of the, the, a well-developed argument for the resurrection. So look at Acts chapter 13. This is Paul and Barnabas. You can look right up the page. and In my Bible, it says Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. Those are handy little, little headings. Let's use that heading. And then let's start reading in verse 26. And let's see what Paul's football is here. Same preacher preaching in a different context here. He's writing to the Corinthian church and says, here's the football. Here he's preaching to the church in Antioch in Pisidia. Let's see what Paul says is the good news here. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, beginning in verse 26, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the football. I know I'm beating that to death, but I really, I know we have our kids in here with us this morning. You guys can see this too. The message of salvation, watch what he says the message of salvation is. 
For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, oh, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us in their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption and decay and decomposition. And he smelled like Lazarus a few days dead. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Man, that's some seriously good news right there. And he connects it to the fact. He says it again, the same language here. The fact of the resurrection. I want you to think about something here for a minute. He calls the people here, the ones who saw the risen Lord, witnesses. I want you to just consider something for a minute. Consider if that is the definition of a witness. Somebody that has seen or is at least by faith convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. If Paul's going to present the football the same way here in a develop, significant development, give significant airtime to the resurrection and the witnesses, then maybe that ought to be part of our witnesses to others. Man, that ought to be part of our gospel account to others. And if anything, these passages are developing me this big blind spot that I don't really talk all that much of trying to convince somebody of the resurrection when I'm sharing the gospel with someone else. I want them to see their sin. I want to see that Jesus died for their sins. I got, I got the stitching down. Jesus was buried. I got the leather down. But I don't spend a whole lot of time on the stuffing. But according to Paul, we should. It's of utmost importance they too need to be convinced as we are convinced that he is in fact risen for apart from being risen he hasn't paid for any sins man how simplified would our witnessing be if our primary witnesses was about the resurrection it might go something like this let me tell you about someone who defeated death my friend, my neighbor, my workmate, my family member. Let me tell you about someone who defeated death. The only one who wasn't defeated by death. The only one, I mean, human-wide, humankind across, period. The only one who wasn't defeated by death. Let me tell you about him. And by believing he was who he said he was, and his victory over death by faith becomes yours. That's good news. It might change our witness. 
It might change the content of our witness. If we, as witnesses, became like these witnesses here that said, oh, he's risen, and there's proof, there's lion food, there's people crucified upside down, there's people who just weeks earlier were the chicken of Passover. Ooh, I don't know Jesus, maiden girl, scary maiden girl. Who now seven weeks later is the bold preacher of Pentecost in the same city where Jesus was crucified. You know what made for a bold Peter? He was eyewitness to a risen Lord. Man, I'm just going to say that that approach to witnessing is clean. It's not cumbersome. You don't need any sort of special training in any special system of presenting. There's no road that you have to go down. And I'm not knocking any of these systems of sharing the gospel. There's no road or outline. There's just a reality of a Jesus that was crucified and paid for your sins, that was buried and that is risen, and there's proof. Man, whenever you present that to someone, they have to reckon with it. Christy and I were talking about that this week, and she said, well, what if they don't believe in God? You know, what if you have a starting point where they don't believe in God? I said, well, they believe in death. Whether they believe in God or not, they believe they're going to die. They may not have an awareness of it. They may think they'll never die, but somewhere back, deep down, they know it's imminent. It's going to happen. So deal with someone, present them someone who defeated what no one else can defeat. And there's proof. There are witnesses, many witnesses, that paid everything for their testimony and did not recant. Man, we know the one who overcame death. We know the one who defeated it. And that's some really good news. It travels into every context because everyone sees it coming. Consider the strength of these passages so far. This passage we looked at just now in Acts. Consider just what we've looked at in 1 Corinthians 15. Consider what led us here in Ephesians chapter 2. Where we're raised together with Christ and we're uh, made alive together with Christ. I want you to consider these are all Paul-written realities. Paul didn't write Acts 13, but he preached it. Luke wrote it. He was the preacher in Acts chapter 13. They all come from Paul. What I want you to appreciate and understand is Paul, for a lot of people, the way people understand Paul's teaching and Paul's theology is by something called the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. Has anybody, anybody ever heard of that? Kind of nod your head or you can give me a thousand yard stare if you haven't. Ordo salutis. Here are some of the parts are the order of salvation according to the ordo salutis. They are first, let me find my notes here. Election before the foundation of the world. Calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and then Eventually and ultimately glorification. I bet if you've been around church any period of time, you heard some of those things. Those come from people trying, trying to make sense of what Paul teaches. And they've given it a Latin term, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to try and make sense of what Paul's teaching. But there's no evidence that Paul's sitting around in the quiet of his own little room with his, his scribes saying, hey man, I think I'm ready to teach the next step in the order salutis to all these people we're going to write a letter to. 
There's nothing wrong with these things, but what seems to be at the heart of what Paul wants to build into the church, whether it's the Corinthian church or the church in Antioch or the church in Ephesus, is that we are united to Christ, especially in his resurrection. (laughs) How about that? If you hadn't given any thought to Paul's theology, then that may not hit you. If you've ever given any thought to Paul's theology, that might be a redirect. You're like, wait a second. I thought Paul was sort of systemizing theology for them, making sense of what God has done. What he seems to be doing, if we just take these snapshots, is building into the church that they are united to Christ, especially in his resurrection. And that because he's resurrected and because we're united to him by faith, we are resurrected. It's a different approach. There's some, uh, some evidence, that, some things that I'm working on here that I will at least give you a, a little reference for. You can look these things up. There's a guy named Richard Gaffin. I'm reading a couple of his books right now that Greg Fields passed me. Well-handled books. Richard Gaffin. I can't remember the name of either one of them, but I can help you with names. You can look them up. They're small books. It's not easy reading, but it's good. There's systematic theology books. If you don't have a systematic theology book in your library, 2016 would be a good time to get one. Okay, Wayne Grudem is a good one. He's not the only one, but he's one of two or three that I have, and he's one that I'm studying right now. And what, this is kind of funny. Wayne Grudem spends, I mean, I don't know how many, 150 pages working through the Order Salutis, working through each of the steps. And then the next chapter after that, he says, you know, all these things are all fine and good, but they could all kind of be summed up in the fact that Paul is really trying to teach that we are united to Christ in the resurrection. And then he talks about union with Christ and what that means. That may not hit you as, as, as awesome, but maybe it'll hit you later this week, or maybe it hits you later this year as you spend more time studying on it. A redirect on what God is trying, God is not trying, God is communicating to us through Paul's writings. That we, the good news is that we are united to Christ by faith, and especially good news is that we united to him in his resurrection means our resurrection. Paul seems to place this with the good news of first importance. This is what's kind of new for me. Paul seems to place this with the good news of first importance, the good news that they believed, the good news that they were holding fast to and standing in, and the good news by which they were being saved. So it's kind of important. The good news by which they're being saved. Do you agree that's kind of important? It's worth trying to make sense of what he's getting at here let's continue on in our first corinthians passage if you if you're not there go ahead and turn back there we're going to pick up in verse 12 i think did i read all the way through it i didn't verse 8 i just skip verses 9 and 10 because paul's really talking about his being an apostle and reading and i'll just kind of pick up for the sake of context we'll grab verse 11 I'll read verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. You held fast to this at one point. Now, let's pick back up in verse 12. Now, he's going to give them two things to really grip. A shaken church. He's going to give them two things to really hold on to. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Now here we're getting to the union of Christ here. You need to pay attention because this is really, really gets good. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And that's where we're going. We're going to save 20 for a few minutes from now. I want to help you make sense of these passages. They, there's some parallels here. What I want you to sort of make notes of, and you can jot down in your notes here, and we're going to just consider for these next few minutes, is some parallel passages are verses 13 and 16, verses 14, 17, and 18, and then third, verses 15 and 19. It's like he says three things, and then he says three things again a different way. So let's just briefly look at what they are. What he's saying here. He's making an argument. He's going to give them two really great things to hold on to. So here are the parallels. Verses 13 and 16. If there's no resurrection for believers, then Christ has not been raised. And he says it a different way in verse 16. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. Okay, now look over at verse 14. If Christ is not raised, then then. Your preaching and your faith is vanity. And then here, here's how he says it in verse 17 and 18. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then in verse 18, then the dead have perished. If Christ has not raised, the dead have perished. And then verses 15 and 19 is the third parallel. Here's what happens if Christ has not been raised, then we've, represent, we've, we've misrepresented God. That's in verse 15. And then in verse 19, and we are the most to be pitied. Those parallels again, verse 13 and 16. I want you to see them. This is the beauty of us having a small gathering this morning and our kids being really well behaved is we can really apprehend this. All right, so I'm not going to rush through it. I got to calm down. Because when things start to get hairy and, and sticky like this, the temptation for me is to try and rush on through it and just hope we, we land the plane. I'm not going to do that. I want you to see what Paul's saying here. So verse 13 and 16 again. The first parallel. If there's no resurrection of believers, then Christ has not been raised. And verse 16. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. The second parallel, verses 14 and then 17 and 18. Verse 14. If Christ is not raised, then your preaching and your faith is vanity. And then in verse 17 and 18, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, verse 18, then the dead have perished. Just like bugs. Verses 15 and 19, the third parallel. If Christ is not raised, we have misrepresented God. Verse 15. Then verse 19, if Christ is not raised, we are the most to be pitied. What's really cool about these passages is Paul is what-ifing some things. He's what-ifing if these things are not true. What if the dead aren't raised? Then what even is the point of this whole thing is really what he's saying. What even is the point of worshiping a Jesus who's still in the tomb? You want to try and diagnose worldwide religions and try and make sense of worldwide religions, man-made religions? You have friends that are practicing other religions and you want to try and figure out how to articulate, talk with them? 
Well, ask them first, is your Savior still in the tomb? Okay, I don't want to be ugly or anything, but mine's not. (laughs) Wouldn't you want to worship a God who somehow defeated the thing that's going to happen to everybody? (laughs) Now, you might want to worship a God that's going to help you overcome poverty. If like that's all that little G God had going for himself is he could help you overcome poverty. That'd be okay in this life. You'd be, man, you'd be living the life of Riley. But then there's then comes death. That God didn't help you with that thing. <laughs> you died rich. Okay. You might have a God that, that helps you somehow overcome oppression. You know, that if somebody's, you know, really being harmful, bullying you or something like that, or being mean to you, or making your life miserable, a God that helps you with that, that's a pretty good thing. But if he doesn't help you overcome death and deal with death, then ultimately death comes and you just die bullied or not bullied. You might have a God that somehow helps you in your lifetime overcome sickness where you never get sick, but then you're still going to die. That God didn't help you with that. But our God defeated that and he proved it by being risen or raised from the dead. That's the kind of God that I want to worship, a God that proved that he can defeat the very thing that we can't defeat, the very thing that no other God, little g God, can deal with, the very thing that no other worldwide religion seems to want to deal with. How are you going to deal with this matter of death? Did your God prove to you that he has defeated that? Mine has. That's that's what he's saying here. He's making the argument. If the dead aren't raised, then what's even the point of this whole thing? (laughs) This just isn't even a false teaching. This just completely disintegrates the good news if the dead aren't raised. Because it means that Christ isn't raised. And what is the point of any religion that's not worshiping a risen Lord? What is the point? Gracious sakes alive. Even if there's a God who will somehow help you with some of your problems, what use use is he or she, (laughs) if you want to give give, give her a her, She doesn't help you with the biggest problem you'll ever face, the end. I want a God that deals and reckons with that. What's the use of one who's proven that he can't overcome that? (laughs) He's a temporary fix. But here's the first handle. He's just using these what ifs, but here's the first handle. The first handle trying to make sense of my notes I told I told Clint I said man you should see my notes they're a mess <laughs> I can hardly read them I said this is gonna be a soup sandwich or it's gonna be amazing I don't know which maybe this may be where it's a soup sandwich I, I'm gonna make sense of this though because it's good here's the first handle he encourages those who've been shaken a church that's been shaken with a false teaching that resurrection is is a farce with the thought, if it didn't happen to Jesus, it's not going to happen to you. Okay, you may wonder for a minute why that's good news. But here's the flip side of that. What he's saying to them, he's encouraging that those who've heard the resurrection isn't going to happen with the good news that what happened, in fact, to Christ will, in fact, happen to you, to those that are united to him by faith. That's good news. 
See, he took the flip side, sort of the anti-version, the bad news, what if, the bad news scenario, and flipped it around to show him the beauty that his resurrection, which was sure, which was proven, which was witnessed, is tied to ours by faith. The whole argument for the reality of and the promise of our resurrection is based on the reality of his. That's the first handle. And the second handle is easy. It's in verse 20. The second handle, this is like, this is Paul's mic drop. All right, he shares verse 20, and it's like, there it is. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is where he shares this other handle, this thing to hold, hold fast to, that Christ was first fruits of something. He's first fruits of the gathering and the harvest of the rest of us. This word may not be familiar to you, so I'll just share a couple of brief passages that I don't have to develop them. They're just obvious what they're saying here. The first is Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And here's the other. And there are many in the Old Testament. This is just a couple of examples. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, first fruits. This word tells us so much, so much about what he's saying here. Remember, this is a football. This is the good news that they should be standing in, that they should be holding fast to that they should be remembering, that they should not have been bewitched from or enticed away from by someone bewitching them. And this word tells us so much about the good news in Christ. It takes us back to the first offerings of wine and grain and cattle in the days of Moses. These offerings were representatives of an entire harvest. These offerings were representative of an entire herd. They weren't an offering. They weren't called to offer every single thing that they had, but an offering of the first and the best of the rest. Now, here's how this is crazy good news, and here's how it connects to a union with Christ. It's not just about being the first offered, but it's about being part of the whole. Offer that first portion of the rest. For people that are doubting whether they're going to be risen or not, well, excuse me, where they're going to be resurrected. And he takes them to the first fruits who was resurrected. Then they've got to go to the reality that the first fruits was a part of the whole. A lamb offered represented the rest of the flock. A bowl of grain offered represented the rest of the harvest. So first fruits expresses the idea of organic connection and unity. <laughs> oh man, I want you to think on that. That's why I'm not going to rush through that. First fruits represents the idea of organic connection and unity and Paul's saying Jesus is your first fruits. 
You are organically connected to him. What happened to him will happen to you because you're part of him. You're part of it. You're part of this event. You're part of that organically. It is inseparable from the rest. Now, it's gathered up, but it's still part. That gathered up bowl of grain represents the whole. So then Christ's resurrection is the first harvest of the first fruits as representative of and organically connected to the whole, the rest of his people. His resurrection is the representative beginning of the resurrection of those united to him by faith. So our resurrection is to his as a field full of sacrificial lambs is to the first one offered as first fruits. People that are doubting whether they're going to be risen or not, they look at what happened to that first sacrificial lamb and they know that his death means our death and his resurrection means our resurrection and his exaltation means our exaltation. Our relationship to him is as a field full of lambs ready for shearing or to the first shorn. Now, don't, don't miss. He's still the best. There's a lesson of first fruits is the best. I don't want to equate us with him, but of what happens to him, I do want to equate. What happened to him happens to us. We're a field full of lambs ready to be shorn. He's the first shorn. Our relationship to him, as taught here, is as fields full of waving grain. That's us. Waving grain is to a handful of the first harvested. That's him. And people that are doubting our resurrection and doubting whether it's going to happen to us, look at what happened to him. Our victory over death is to his victory over death as truckloads of grain are organically united to the first scoop gathered up and offered to God. And that was Jesus. Man, union with Christ is everything because his victory over death is necessarily our victory over death because he is organically connected to us by faith. That's crazy good news. So his resurrection isn't just a promise of ours. It is organically connected to ours. It is organically connected to ours. Ours is a necessary consequence of his. Think of it that way. Ours is a necessary consequence of his. Paul doesn't see his resurrection as distinct and different from ours. That's speaking of Christ. Instead, he sees it, or he doesn't even see it as two different events. Christ's resurrection is the first episode in a series of organically connected events because of the good news of our union with Christ by faith. That's what he encourages the shaken church with, those two handles. You may not be shaken this morning, but people get shaken from time to time. I spoke to somebody that is near and dear to me just a few weeks ago who was being shaken about their faith. I'm not even sure. What if, what if this thing is just a collection of connected dots? 
And who's to say our collection of connected dots is any different from anyone else's collection of connected dots? Who's to say we're right? Who's to say we didn't just contrive this whole thing? And you know where I go? I go to a vacant tomb, and that's where I took this person that's dear to me. I would go take them to a vacant tomb, and then I take them to the necessary reality that our tomb will be vacant as well. Man, that's where I go. That's a connected dot that's connected by faith. It happens to be a true dot and a true connection and one that means everything to me. I want to ask you this question as we close. What does this news do for you today? I hope at least it helps you appreciate the gravity of the resurrection and our union with him in that resurrection by faith. First, I hope that's a given. But I hope that it's setting a stage for what we'll consider in these next couple of weeks, that you will see that you're not the subject of some experiment. You're not a recipe that God is cooking. And you're going to somehow have these ingredients of you know, these events that happen to you. Now we're going to turn the heat up and he's going to be justified. And then we're going to cool it and put it in the oven. And then he's going to be glorified. And he's, there's nothing wrong with that ordo salutis. I don't want to cast any sort of shadow of doubt on that. But I don't want you to see what has happened to you as something that has happened like God just did to you. And then there's Jesus. What I want you to see is a connection that what God did to Jesus by faith, he did and does to you. The good news is union with Christ. That's why we got to know what's happened to Jesus. That's why we got to know what it meant, because that's what's happening to us. If you have this view of being dead in your trespasses and sins and sort of being this patient in a hospital where you need God to come give you some good medicine, that's not a bad thing, and that's pretty good news that he's got some medicine to make you well. But what's better news and what should occupy some or maybe all or at least many of our thoughts in 2016 is the crazy notion that whatever Christ did as our representative, God counts to us as something as if we did it by our union with faith, by faith with Christ. That's crazy. Whatever Christ did as our representative, God counted it as being something we did. Whatever Christ earned, God counted it to us as if we've earned it. Whatever benefits Christ received through his sinlessness, through his faithfulness, through his obedience, through his sacrifice, God counts as our benefits. That's the good news. That's the scandal of this gospel. Man, every other man-made religion has some version of perform, perform. Jump through hoops. Jump over hurdles. Be good enough. Not ours. Ours says he was good enough. He was enough. And his righteousness is counted as yours. Oh, man, that, mm, that'll, that'll travel. And all of this is by our union with him by faith. Let's pray. God, I'm looking forward to these next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to this, this, what's in store. I've enjoyed what's happened today in this 
notion, this reality, and this dot that's so true, that's so worth connecting, that's connected by the Holy Spirit, that by faith we are united to Christ, and the benefits that Christ has received by faith become ours. God, I'm thankful for this beautiful picture of a resurrected Christ that is proven by witnesses, assures us of resurrected believers. I'm thankful for a Lord, too, that has defeated death. God, I pray for those that we know and love and care about that are believing and trusting in some little G God that has not defeated death, that hasn't proven that they have any ability to overcome death. I pray that we can be witnesses who are salty, bright, and aromatic, presenting this reality, this wonderful truth of a proven, risen Lord. God, we are thankful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.